Thank you, Sai. How's it 10 a.m.? How's online? Let us know how you're doing in the comments. Um, listen, I said it at the 8 a.m., it's still true now. Um, God woke me up to preach, and so uh, it's going to be a fun one. And I haven't started a series for a while, so I'm dead excited because we're just continuing in the book of Acts. If you've been tracking with us, you'll know um, that Acts is going to form a big study for the year. We'll be camping in it a lot. But this new mini-series is called Unstoppable Church. And so we pick up in Acts chapter 3, right from where we left off just before Vision Sunday. And if you are new to the space, let me catch you up. Jesus has pulled off Easter. It's all gone down. Uh, literally, Jesus died, buried, resurrected. He appears to his early followers and to many others for about 40 days. And in Acts chapter 1, we find his final words just before he ascends to heaven where he'll rule and reign with God in, in, in heaven. And his final words are, I'm going to ascend. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to empower you, to fill you, so that you can accomplish what I've called you to do. And then in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost happens. The Spirit comes. Peter will preach. And he will literally kick off the OG revival. That's what we saw in our first mini-series. The church of Jesus is born. And that is a church and a revival that has continued into today. And that is the unstoppable church that started in the book of Acts but continues today through you and me. And as we get into Acts chapter 3, uh, what I do love is just how much this story, this narrative in Acts chapter 3, the very first account of the first miraculous healing um, in the church in Acts, is, is how beautifully it marries to our vision from last week, as you would have heard, because it is a story of a lame man that will be healed through the power of the Spirit as Peter and John are going to the temple. And it's a famous story, but I think there's so much for us to glean. And what you find in the story are places, spaces, relationships, because you find they were going to a temple, the temple that they regularly went to, the regular place of their worship and prayer. And in the midst of that, they had a relationship because there was a guy who was, and you'll hear through the text, well known to the, uh, to the community. He always begged at that gate in that time every single day. And there's this relationship that gets created. And then Peter will actually preach a message in the public space. And so we already see through the book of Acts, spaces, places, relationships. And so you're going to see a bleed out throughout our study this year, and it will marry so well with Vision 2022. And so I'm excited. Are you excited? Yeah. At 10 a.m., I have told you this before. The more you respond, the better I preach, the better it is for everyone. 10 a.m., are you ready? There we go. Okay, so Acts chapter 3, I'll give you a, a, a POA, plan of action, what it's going to look like. I want to take a look at this chapter under three main headings. The wonder, the word, and the way. You actually find the two halves of the chapter being the wonder, the actual act, the miracle of this lame man being healed. Then Peter will preach a word, and then there is a way, an application that I believe will speak to you and me. Let me pray, and we'll get into this. Father God, I want to thank you so much that you have a church in mind for today that you already had in mind in the book of Acts. That this is not the, the church we're looking back on with rose-tinted glasses saying, well, I wish it was like that. No, actually, that is what started um, as your spirit launched the church, birthed the church, but it continues today through you and me. It continues through us meeting together to us being the body of Christ on the earth today. And so it's my prayer, even as we look at this account of this miraculous healing, that you will speak to our hearts, 
that you will literally be a, create a foundation of truth and that foundation is your word. That it is a strong platform that we can launch into all the purposes you have for us individually and as a church. It's my prayer that in these moments we get to share you will be over my words. These are not my words, they are yours. Holy Spirit, will you be present? Will you translate this message hundreds of different ways so that it hits every heart exactly where it needs to? It's the craziness that is the supernatural word of God that it can speak to us even through this. And so Lord, I, I do pray you'll be with us. Would you be honored and glorified in this place? And the faithful church said, amen. amen. Starting out, very first heading, The Wonder. We're going to take a look at the beginning of chapter 3 in the book of Acts. It starts out like this. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m., just for your info. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the temple, at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, and as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand, and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Isn't it interesting? Luke, the great physician writing the book of Acts, includes that for us. You can imagine if he was lame from birth, how deformed his legs would have looked, how no, there would be no muscle, it would be skin and bone, but he wants us to know that this miracle was crazy, and it happened instantaneously as those legs were made strong, and they were made straight. It says, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. We're going to see how special that is just now. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the wonder that goes on before their eyes, the very first miraculous healing, physical healing in the early church. I love this moment because it gave me the feeling for Peter and John, it would have been that experience that some of us maybe have had when we get our driver's license. Because this really for them was the first moment where it felt like the training wheels are off, there's no more safety net. They were doing something they had done in the past, but now Jesus has ascended. They have the Holy Spirit in the back pocket and they're going in the purpose of God. They're doing it. It's on them. They're walking in His way. It's like that moment when you get your driver's license where you've been quite used to having someone sitting next to you, but now suddenly you're driving on your own. I got my driver's license on a Friday. I got my first speeding ticket on Saturday, and it was 2,000 Rand. I got in a lot of trouble. It was fun. <laughs> But it's that moment where there's no more safety net, there's no more training wheels, it's go. And I love that Peter and John walk in faith. They don't look at, the, at where they lack, they don't, they're not freaked out by it, they're going to just follow God in what He had called them to do. Now some notes on this wonder, on this miracle. I want to first take a look at that lame man, give you a quick profile, because I think sometimes we miss just how hectic the circumstance would have been being disabled in that time. We have great technology that helps those who are disabled now. In that time, in terms of public status, you were very low. 
you were actually uh, in the midst of Jewish culture, you were unclean as a disabled person. We're going to see later, it's why he was sitting outside the temple, because he was not allowed in. He was considered unclean. And so because of it, you now have no means to provide for yourself. And so in a culture where the status of being married was important, you had no opportunity to be married because you couldn't provide for yourself or a spouse. And so you had no voice. And being a man in that society, it meant that no one would ever look to you as having any worth or any value or anything to offer. And this is the reality this man would sit in day after day. He didn't know this day would be different. He didn't know things would change. He didn't actually know that he would be used to fulfill a prophecy, an Old Testament prophecy that came through Isaiah 700 years before. In Isaiah 32, verse 6, it says, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. That picture of him jumping and entering the temple and praising God was foretold by Isaiah 700 years before. And this guy didn't know that his story was going to change because the powerful nature of this story is that the banner over it is the name of Jesus. The power in the story is that Peter and John, in their words, say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, they get very specific, rise up and walk. Now, there is no power in simply those words or the dry phrase. It's not some pagan mantra. If we get the formula right, then it happens. Put the vending machine, get to it, put the coin in, select your right number, boom, miracle. That's not how it works. What it does is, in the name of Jesus, in proclaiming that name, they are inviting the power of Jesus over this situation to enact His will. Understand, it's not based on Peter and John. It's based on the name of Jesus powerfully moving in this man's life and literally changing his story. Now, whenever you get to physical healing, there's always some questions around it. Uh, I had a preach at the end of last year in our gifted series where we looked at the spiritual gifts and specifically the gift of healing. And I'd encourage you, if you want to go into a little bit more depth, go catch up. It's on our YouTube page. You can find it under the gifted series. It was part three. Um, Online, we'll drop it in the, in the comments so you can have a link. Makes it easy for our online community. But there's a couple of questions that I don't think I can ever skip over when we get into a miracle like this one. There's a couple of questions that always come up. The first one being, well, why doesn't everyone get healed? If God wants to heal and God is capable of healing, then why doesn't everyone get healed? And there's often two answers given one that I think is helpful, but we have to wisely understand it. The other one I think is very unhelpful and damaging and actually goes against what we even see in this story. And so I want to myth bust it. But often the two answers given in faith circles or by Christians or by people like me standing on a stage like this is number one, the reason there might not be a healing happening is because there is a sin problem. Now, we find in the Bible examples where sin is an issue and the sin of the person has either brought the suffering or is causing the, sin, the suffering to continue. There's examples of it, there's precedent, and so we need to understand that is a reality. But it's not always helpful to tell someone, hey, the reason you're not being healed is because you are a sinner and you're sinning right now. It sometimes means we have to walk with wisdom and discern what is going on because there is a sin problem that causes a need for healing. And so I wanna take a, take a look at that first, to say actually that we need to look at the origins of disease, the origins of decay, the origins of this man's strife and suffering, because it does find its origins in sin and the sin problem. The Bible teaches that actually 
the world was not meant to be like this. That sin has broken the world, and because sin has broken the world, it has towed along with us things like disease and suffering and pain. And so you will, in a world that is broken, not be shocked when you see these things happen. So there is a sin problem. Now there might be a sin problem in you. There might be sin that is committed by someone else against you that has now caused uh, your suffering. But then there also might be sin, uh, there might be uh, suffering that isn't caused by those type of natures, but it's simply because we live in a world where these things can be seen and can be present. In a world where cancer can grow, sometimes cancer will grow. In a world where you can be lame from birth, sometimes you will then see people be lame from birth. But it's so important to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's so important to see it in its right place, to discern and, and hear God's voice in it, to understand, hey, it's not just because you are sinning that now this is suffering is here and the suffering will continue. It's a dangerous ground to get on. The second problem that often is brought up, and it's a problem I hate thrown out because I see the damage, I've seen the damage it's caused, is that there is a faith problem. That you are not getting healed because you do not have enough faith to make it happen. It's a lie. It actually gets busted by this story right here. Please notice, the layman was quite aware of his suffering and circumstance. I'm sure he had a desire to be healed. But in this moment, as Peter and John are approaching him, he is not expecting to get healed. What he is expecting was to receive a few coins. And so to say, well, he, he had a faith problem, that's why he's not getting healed, would be wrong because in the midst of it, he didn't even have the awareness to possess the faith to be healed. And so what you find is actually the faith in the situation and the circumstance is actually located in Peter and John who are walking and are led by the Spirit to say, all right, I don't have silver and gold, but here's what I do have. And so what I always want to encourage and what I think the Bible talks about is that the locus or the location of faith is secondary in its importance. What is always primary is that there is faith present. And so you will find examples where someone has faith to be healed and they are. And you'll find examples where someone has the gift of healing and they have the faith to heal someone and they have no clue and it doesn't matter about the person. And then you'll have other examples where God just does what God wants to do. And, no, and we don't even have the ability to know where the faith was. And so it's really important to understand that a faith problem is very dangerous ground. Because what does it do? It makes me the problem. It makes me the limits of the one getting in the way. And I don't believe that's actually what God's word says. Here's what I think will be helpful in understanding and answering this question. I think there's a few truths we can grab a hold of. Truth number one is that I don't think we can miss God's heart for healing. That God has a deep desire for healing. That we actually see he doesn't just care about our spiritual healing, but he does also care about physical healing. Take a look through the Gospels. You'll find 27 accounts of individuals being healed by Jesus. You have 10 groups of people in the Gospels where we don't know the number completely, but they are healed by Jesus. Through the book of Acts, this is the very first account, but there are 14 other accounts of physical healing in the early church. And so just a, a, a cursory look over these things says to me that healing matters to God that it's important to him, that he had, has a desire for it and is the only one powerful enough to make it happen. And that's the first truth we have to get a hold of. The second truth is that God is sovereign and so we need to realize that the truth is we don't have the full picture. 
And we can be asking, and, and it's a good question to ask, why is the healing not coming? But we need to understand that we don't always have the full picture, that we don't always know the answer. And anyone who says they do know with clarity is basically saying that they know as God knows. And it's dangerous ground when we're saying that because then you're forgetting Paul's words as he quotes from the Old Testament in Romans 11 where he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? We don't have the full picture, but God does. He is the one who knows the beginning from the end and he is the one who will always enact his will for our best. He is always the one who brings about his purposes so that we may flourish. We might not understand the in-between, and just as a, just for a moment, if you're in that space right now, I want to encourage you. If you're in the space where you're believing, where you're hoping, where you're praying for a healing and it hasn't yet come, the posture we take is a posture of faith. The posture we take is one where we continue to pray and continue to believe that God is going to do it because we trust in his heart that he desires it. We know that he has the power for it, but we also will trust in his sovereign hand that it will be in his timing. I even know of people who for so long, they prayed for healing, believed for healing, and healing didn't come this side of eternity. Can I encourage you with this last truth? The guarantee from scripture is that God will always heal. It may not be this side of eternity, but it definitely will be in eternity. Because understand there will be a moment where Jesus corrects every wrong, where all things are made new, where he dries every tear, where there is no more disease, no more decay, no more deformation. There are no more lame beggars sitting at a gate. None. It's done. And so the guarantee and the eternal hope we have, and this is unlike anything on the face of the planet, is that we have an eternal hope in a sovereign God. And that should make us feel an empowered posture, even in the midst of the unknown, even in the midst of the not yet, even in the midst of we're still praying, still believing, still hoping but we have a hope, an eternal hope, in the God who loves us, who cares for us, who doesn't just wanna see us spiritually healed, but wants to see us physically healed. I wanna just show you a few things from this story that I think are also helpful in giving us that idea of, oh, God does see the whole picture. Take note of the, of the lame man here. It makes it clear that he was well known. The fact that when he comes strolling in, jumping and leaping and praising God, everyone goes, isn't that the guy? meant that he probably sat at that gate, got brought to that gate to beg every single day and it probably had happened for years. We don't know how long, we're not given much more information in terms of his age or we just know he had suffered from birth like this. And so it wouldn't be a stretch of the imagination to think that for the last few months or the last few years that had been his reality. The fact that people knew who he was recognized him. The fact that the disciples recognized him. And so what it tells me is that, hey, in a couple months before this, Jesus would have been with his disciples going to the temple, entering the Eastern Gate, the beautiful gate. And so there's a very high chance that this man would have been present. Jesus would have walked by and not healed. And we look at it and from our not seeing the full picture, you'd probably be like, God, you desire to heal, you have the power to heal, but Jesus, you just walked past that man and entered the temple. And yet Jesus, being empowered by the Spirit, knowing the will of the Father, what does he do? He walks past and he goes, not today. Not today. Not today. Because he knew there would be a day coming. And that day would be post-Pentecost. And it would be Peter and John. 
and they would have their moment where the tug of the Holy Spirit in their heart goes, today's the day. And it would literally mean that thousands more people would be added to the church, would find salvation in Jesus. Because Peter's gonna preach a message and thousands will come to know him. And we look at it with the full picture and go, it makes sense. Can I just encourage you, when we're in the unknown, we can have faith in the fact that God sees the full picture, that he is the one who enacts his purposes for our good and we have an eternal hope in that. Next question that often comes up around physical healing is what is the goal of physical healing? I know so often we fall for the trap where this becomes the magic show. It's the ministry of healing and we forget it's actually the ministry of Jesus. It's all about let's see the, the sign and the wonder but we forget that there is a, the wonder is there to point to Jesus. And so there is a goal to physical healing and it isn't just the magic show, it isn't just the awe and amazement of it, it actually is gonna point to something else and I think it points to three goals. The first goal is salvation. I mentioned earlier, this man would have never entered the temple property. He could never go onto the premises because he was considered unclean. Because of his spiritual standing, because he was uh, in this state meant he was not allowed in. And so it is super significant that straight after his healing, he goes in with Peter and John into the temple praising God. It would have been his first time ever doing it. Because now he had not just been physically healed, he had been spiritually healed. He wasn't just unclean in his physical nature and his spiritual nature, he was made clean comprehensively. And so salvation is always going to be the goal of physical healing. It never just ends in the wonder, it points to a savior. Second thing we see as a, as a goal is worship. It comes out in that picture he has of him leaping and, and giving praise to God. And then it gives rise to the third goal, which is evangelism. Because now everyone has watched this happen. And so it creates an opportunity for Peter to preach a sermon, to actually present the gospel and call for the people to repent and respond to the salvation call. And so evangelism is always going to be attached to this because the people knew who he was, they knew his state, and they see him now and they have a question, how did this come about? And the answer that they get met with is, is in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And it puts that invitation on the table and it makes them have to respond and make a call. The wonder's amazing. But if we just keep it here, understand we miss half the beauty because the wonder will always point to the word. That's the second heading. Peter's gonna preach this message as the crowd had gathered and kind of there had been uh, the big hullabaloo. And he will preach a word that does two things. And when you present the gospel, the gospel always has to have these two things. It's two sides of the same coin. He will actually preach a message that both indicts the people and exalts Jesus. The gospel for you and me should indict us because our sin put Jesus on the cross but it also should exalt Jesus as the holy, righteous savior who makes redemption possible. It has to do both. So as I read through this, I'm actually gonna highlight the four indictments he brings against the people and the five exaltations he gives of Jesus. And they're interlinked and interspersed. And I think that's important that we get those connections because we can't have one without the other. It can't just be a damning message, hey, you need to repent this and forget that Jesus is holy and loving and has made a way for your redemption. Both have to be there. 
He starts out in verse 13 and he, he'll, he'll start on the common ground they have. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He actually appeals to the people and says, hey, let me talk to what you know and then I'm gonna tell you what you don't know. And he launches into the, the first two exaltations of Jesus. He says, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. Exaltation number one, Jesus is the promised servant of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 52 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. And that servant, Jesus, is number two, glorified by God. It's an exaltation of just how good Jesus is, that he's glorified by God. He is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. Philippians 2 verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That Jesus, that servant Jesus, that one glorified by Jesus, indictment number one comes, whom you delivered over. Understand the word Christian and Christianity hadn't really taken root in the early church. The early church actually was known uh, originally as simply the followers of the way. The way was seen as a cult. They were seen as dangerous. Jesus was seen as a dangerous cult leader. And the religious leaders of the day who held the power saw it as a threat to their power structure. And so they didn't like that. It was the whole reason they actually enacted the plot to kill Jesus to get him out the way because of the threat that he posed. So understand that Jesus' own people delivered him over. Indictment number one. Indictment number two, it gets worse who you denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. There was a pagan ruler who actually had taken Jesus in chains. His name was Pontius Pilate. And Pilate actually, as he looked over the situation, came to the conclusion that Jesus was innocent. He said, I have nothing to hold against this man. I don't know why he has been arrested and wanted to release him. And it's an indictment against the people because a pagan ruler saw the true value and the truth of Jesus far more than his own people did. It led to the next uh, combo of indictment and exaltation where he continues and says, but you denied the holy and righteous one. Jesus is the holy and righteous one, the one who was sinless, the one who was innocent. Even Pilate saw it. And yet you were the one who denied him. And so the craziness is that you would uh, trade infinite righteousness, infinite holiness for unrighteousness and unholiness. Because Pilate will do what, he, what was customary at the time where he would take two prisoners, offer them to the people and say, which one do you want to go free? And on the one side you had Jesus, the innocent, holy, righteous one. And on the other you have Barabbas who was an insurrectionist, a murderer. And the people will say, give us Barabbas. And so they will deny the holy and righteous one to take a murderer and a sinner instead. It gets even worse. You killed the author of life. Colossians 1 tells us that everything that was created was created through Jesus. And so everything in creation came through him. And so he is the author of life. And then as creation was broken by sin and he makes a way to redeem it, to make it new, understand he's also the author of true spiritual life coming into the world. And so you killed the author of life. And so rejecting Jesus is actually a rejection, not just of life, but of eternal life. 
It's the craziness of going against Jesus, of going against the gospel and going our own way. And yet, how often do we go our own way? And the final exhortation that he gives, and this is the ultimate exaltation of Jesus as Messiah, is the one whom God raised from the dead. Understand, if Jesus had stayed in the tomb, none of it mattered. Our faith, church, the church is stoppable if Jesus remained in the tomb. The fact that he was raised from the dead, that he appeared to so many over 40 days that the Roman authorities couldn't explain it, couldn't produce a body because he was no longer there, that actually was the power of the gospel to make resurrection life available to you and me. In his death, as he lived a sinless life, it meant that our sin could be transferred to him. But in his raising from the dead, it meant that his eternal life could now be transferred to us so that we have eternity with him. It's the exaltation of Jesus as Messiah, as, as the Savior, as the one who could bring salvation to humanity. That was the wonder. And then Peter speaks the word. And I want to now take a look at how I think this can apply to every single one of us. And so under this third heading, the way, I want to ask this question. What can we learn from the characters in the story? Because I know there'll be some of us, hopefully a lot of us, who are sitting here going, I really want to be used like Peter and John were used. I really want the Spirit to work in me and accomplish the purposes of God through me in the same way. And so I think it's a great question to ask, well, what does it look like to be used by the Spirit? I think those who the Spirit uses, number one, what we can see in Peter and John, is He will use those who consistently walk in the ordinary and are available for the extraordinary. So often we get it wrong. We want to be available for the extraordinary, but we forget that walking in the ordinary consistently is important. I want to take you right back to the very first verse, the moment where the training wheels were off. I don't think Peter and John knew what was going to happen that day as they set off for the temple. But they were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. Very important. Because they were doing an ordinary thing, a regular thing, something they did every day. And as they walked consistently in the ordinary things, they were then available to be used by God for the extraordinary. Now, don't get, don't get this wrong and think I'm saying we need to be doing religious things. We need to be ticking the box. We need to be, you know, let's go to, let's go to do this. Let's pray. Let's do all these things. That's good. Jesus is not about religion. He's about relationship. So when I'm talking about the ordinary, I'm talking about doing the right things at the right time. But I'm talking about do the ordinary things of relationship. Because what are the ordinary things of relationship? Because the thing is, we don't relate to Jesus by the law or by legalism. We relate to Jesus by grace. And so if we relate to him by the law, then we have to relate by the sacrificial system. Understand, Peter and John are coming to the temple at 3 p.m., the hour of prayer. Notice they're not coming to the temple at 6 a.m., the hour of sacrifice, as the law would dictate them to do. Because they don't no longer need a sacrifice that is temporary because they have the eternal sacrifice of Jesus covering them. And so they don't relate to Jesus by the law. They relate to Jesus by relationship. And so they will walk in the ordinary things of relationship because what are you expecting relationship? I'm going to be with you. I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to seek you. I'm going to go deeper in our relationship. And so they're going to temple. They're literally going to pray, hear from God, worship God, give glory, give praise, give honor, give thanks to God. These are all relational things and quite ordinary. They regularly will do it. But in the midst of walking, 
out the ordinary. We're available for God to use us in the extraordinary. It wasn't every day that they were going to be talking to a lame beggar. But when the Holy Spirit was there and the nudge came and said, today's the day, they were there and ready to go. It leads me to the second thing that I think those who are used by the Spirit do is they're willing to surrender their schedule to holy interruption. They could have sat on that, 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 that road and gone, well, we're going to go do a good thing, the right thing. My schedule's hectic. Hour of prayer is only an hour and it's only at this time. And yet they were willing to be interrupted as the Holy Spirit would nudge on their heart and say, hey, have a conversation here. Hey, do this. And so they'll be obedient to the interruption because they know where the interruption comes from. I had this moment, um, and I can tell you in a room like this with this many people and, and the numbers we'll see today, I know for a fact if you, are go, if you shop in this area or drive in this area, I almost guarantee you'll know the guy. I almost guarantee you'll know the guy that I'm talking about. I had this moment where this guy, he often will approach you in a shop, he'll approach you on the road. I've had it when I've been driving. And uh, just to be straight up, I think he's a con man. Always asking for money. I've, five or six times he has been telling me a story as to why he needs the money and the stories never match up. And he always forgets that he's approached me before. And so it must be awkward. And to be honest, I told the guys even afterwards, they asked the question. Even in the moments where I've known he's been joking a bit and the stories don't line up and actually, and you're asking for 50 Rand, if I've got it, I'll give it to you. Don't, don't mishear me. Let's go for it. Let's be, let's help those who are. But he caught me on a bad day. And it's probably like the sixth time he's approached me. And the sixth time where he didn't realize that he has done that before. And on a bad day where I was running late for a meeting and things were crazy and it was high stress and I was at spa and I'm walking down the aisles and it's like you, you walk down the wrong aisle because you think you're trying to find the thing you want to buy but now you find you're in like the pineapple and kiwi aisle and, um, and you don't know where you are and I didn't even see him coming and he just caught me off guard. And it started as normal. There's a story, whatever the story is, and then the big ask. And I actually stopped him midway. I interrupted him. And to be honest, I was actually pretty cheesed because I was like angry now because I'm like, now I know, like I know there's lies here. Just tell me what you want. And that's when he started to, fall, like, to backtrack and wanted to get out of there. And you could see he was going to try and make a quick exit, stage left. And in the midst of that, God stopped me. God interrupted me because I could, it could have gone down a very different road. And in that moment, I realized, hey, you know, he, he's going about, he's got circumstances, he's got stuff that he's struggling with, and he's got stuff that clearly God is wanting to deal with. And the question is, will I allow it myself to be interrupted to be a part of that? And so I said to him, listen, I, like, how much do you need? He needed like 50 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever it was. And I said, I don't actually have cash on me. I'm gonna be dead honest. I would give it to you if I did. But I really just feel right now, I've never done it because you, and I did tell him, I said, this is actually probably the sixth time you've approached me. And I have given you money in the past, but I've never done this. Would you mind if I pray for you? And in the middle of spa, I think he reluctantly, I think all he wanted to do was get out of there, but he reluctantly agreed. And so I prayed with him and sometimes awkward in the midst of that public space, but we'll go for it. And uh, as I laid on hands and I just prayed, my prayer was simply that, this guy would know that God sees him, that God sees his struggle, and that God actually would be the one who leads him on a path that will lead him in straight ways, that where, where there is things that have gone wrong, he'll bring restoration, and that actually God is pursuing this guy's heart. 
that far beyond money and circumstance, God actually cares for this guy's heart. And his final words to me, just as, as he was going, was, I used to have a relationship with God. And there might be a day where I turn back to him, but I just don't think that's today. And I said, well, I just want you to know, this conversation could have gone very differently, but God actually led me a different way. And so I just want you to know that God has seen you, that God does care about you because he literally has spoken to you through me. I can tell you if it was up to me, this conversation wouldn't have gone like this. But I need you to know that God cares for you, that he loves you, and actually that there's a better way that this can go. That actually you have a hope and a peace that can be found in Jesus. Left him with that and that's where it ended. But I wonder what would have happened if I didn't allow myself to be interrupted in that way. Because the truth is we sometimes, and this is what I think is so important, we need to be willing to give what we have. The thing that we see in Peter and John is they were willing to give what they had. But so often we look at what we don't have. We, we put our focus on our lack. And so we'll look and say, well, the problem needs silver and gold, but silver and gold I don't have. Well, that might be a good thing. Because actually, perhaps your testimony matters. Perhaps your prayer could matter far more than the silver or gold could ever. Now, don't get me wrong. There'll be moments where it's like, let's be generous and God will call us to give. But the question is, what has God put in our hand to give to someone else? Because what he had given Peter and John was not silver and gold. What he had given them was the power of his spirit to change this man's life. And so the question is, then, are we willing to give what we have? Because I think this is, the, this is something else we see. Um, we need to have an outward focus where we have a focus on others' needs. And I know that this is probably going to hit hard in the midst of COVID and crisis where we are. But I think we know that our selfishness can be dangerous because it can often be the thing that gets in the way of the Holy Spirit using us. And there's a special dynamic that's kicked in in this in the midst of the last two years we had where I think our inward focus, because it's normally just a natural wiring. Normally we're naturally wired to be selfish and inward focused and so we really have to unlearn it by, by God's power to see the needs of others. But I think there's been an inward focus that has crept in because so many of us have been in crisis that to get through the turmoil and the strife of the last season has meant we have had to focus inside and we literally are so energy depleted that there's nothing left to focus outwardly. And I want you to know if you're in that space, there is healing and restoration available for you. Because Jesus doesn't want us to be in that space where we're just trying to get by, where there's that inward focus because we're just trying to, we're almost like in survival mode. He doesn't want us to live in that space. He wants to heal and restore us so that we get out of survival mode and actually can be now used by him. And if you're in that space, I don't want you to feel like condemned in it. I just want you to know, I really do believe what Jesus is saying to you today is it's time to get out of survival mode. And it's not by your striving. It's not by your strength. It's literally by his healing power and restoration that that can happen so that you're no longer sitting in that space where all you can do is focus on the inside to get by, but actually look to the needs of others and be used by God in that way. Last thing we see them do uh, is Peter and John are willing to promote God and not themselves. Peter's words in verse 12, the very next thing, is men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? I think so often when we see God move, we'll relate the work of God 
to the instrument God uses to bring about that work. Peter and John were making it very clear they were not the ones who did the healing, that it wasn't based on their holiness or their righteousness. It wasn't based on them following the formula to get the, the miracle happening. It was actually simply them being available, but God's power using them, working through them to make this happen. And so they are always pointing the glory to where it should go, and it's to Jesus. They're very specific. It's in the name of Jesus. They don't say by God's power, in the name of Jesus. It's really important that we see that. Here's the way I want to start to wrap up. What we learn from the lame man, I think there's two important things as we look at his character in the midst of the story. The first big thing, and this was a challenge to me, I think what we learn from the lame man is that instead of asking for God to bless our plan, we should start praying for his plan. Because isn't it funny that you have the layman, and I take this post the posture of the layman so often. There's a circumstance and a situation and a problem. And I think, well, here's my plan and how to fix it. I need provision for the day, and so I'm going to go big and ask for silver and gold to get me through the day. And then what we do initially when we're in a relationship with Jesus is, God, I've got this great plan. Will you bless it? Will you get the people, will you work in their hearts to put the silver and gold in my hands so that the problem can be fixed? But God goes, that's not the plan I have. The plan I have is so much better because what was God's plan? I don't want to provide provision for a day in silver and gold. I want to give you provision for a lifetime and eternity with me. Because understand, the moment he got his legs strong, it meant he now had a means to provide for himself for the rest of his life earthly life. And because he had been healed, not just physically, but spiritually, and now was in relationship with Jesus, meant that now he had an eternal provision in Jesus, able to walk in resurrected life. And so often we say, Lord, will you bless this plan? And he goes, this plan is rubbish. This is what I have in mind. We try to swap the provision for a day, and we miss out on the provision for a lifetime and eternity. God's plan is always better. Lord, don't bless that. I pray you give me this. Lead me in this. Last thing, and the band's gonna join me on stage. I think the big banner, the power of this story in the testimony of the lame man is that no restriction to worship can stand against the love of Jesus. Understand this man was restricted. He was limited. And I find it so important that the very first miracle coming out of Pentecost and the birth of the church happened in this place, at the beautiful gate outside the temple. Understand the temple showed and symbolized at that time the presence of God, the means of worship, and very specifically God is saying this is going to happen outside the temple. Because the plan was always that the presence of God, the Spirit of God would not be in a building, but it would be in men and women. It says, in, even back in the Old Testament, it says the dwelling place of God is with man. That was always the plan. Sin messed it up royally. And so it's beautiful to see that the presence of God had moved out of the temple, it had moved into the hearts of men and women who will then use that Holy Spirit empowerment to change lives by the power of the gospel. And so it's really important that we don't miss that the restriction that was there that was placed over this man 
was removed so that he could be brought into the presence of God, the relationship with God, so that the restriction to his worship of God could be removed. It's a powerful picture for us of God in his pursuit of our hearts. As he pursued that lame man, he pursues you and me. As he makes a way for that lame man to find physical healing and spiritual healing, he makes a way for us to get the same. And so I don't know what's been speaking to you. I don't know what healing you need today. But God's wanting to do something. We're going to sing a song called, Oh, Come to the Altar. Why don't, why don't you stand with me? And I think this song is so powerful in preparing us for our response because I'm going to give us an opportunity to respond to whatever healing God is, is calling you to. Whether it's spiritual or physical, get your heart ready for that. But as we sing, this picture of the altar is so important to me because it was a picture of worship. And so when you came to an altar, you would bring a sacrifice. And in that sacrifice was really you saying, I'm aware of my falling short. I'm aware that there is a debt that needs to be paid and I can't pay it myself. And so I need an agent of sacrifice to pay it for me. The amazing thing is we don't have to trust in sacrifices of animals, temporary sacrifices, inferior sacrifices. The sacrifice we have is Jesus himself. The one, the lame that was slain so that the sins of the world might be forgiven and resurrection life is available to every single one of us. And so we're gonna have a moment where right now each and every one of us are gonna sing and God's gonna do business in hearts and we're gonna come to the altar and we're going to bring our sacrifice of worship in glorious praise of the, the ultimate sacrifice being Jesus. And then we're going to respond. And I'd encourage you, this is a moment to lift your hearts, to lift your hands, to lift your voices. Because God is wanting to shift hearts today. He's wanting to change things today. And, and even as I'm speaking, I know there's people who are going, yeah, it's me. Today's my day. My number's up today. Let's give all glory. Let's give all honor to Jesus, our ultimate sacrifice. Let's sing and then we'll respond.